Hi and welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast, a podcast for healthcare professionals interested in the latest innovations within Terragnostics. Tuesday morning in Barcelona, day four of the EANM Congress, and it's time for the last episode of our podcast that's recorded live here at the Congress. The topic of today is Terragnostics. Today we will discuss how Terragnostic can further nuclear medicine Three new experts in the studio from different parts of the globe. We have Cristina Nani from Bologna, Bologna in Italy. We have uh, Professor Andre Iagaru from uh, the University of Stanford in US. And we have Jeevan Virk from uh, Novartis. Welcome to the Diagnostic Talks podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, let's start with a, a short question, uh, a short answer to you all. Uh, in the very, very first episode of this podcast, we talked to Rodney Hicks, and he talked about teragnostics as the next pillar of the temple of oncology. Will teragnostics be the next pillar? Andre. Well, let me start with uh, noticing that you pronounce it with a G. So, uh, happy to see that, because we don't say diagnostics, we say diagnostics, so it's Terranostics, in my opinion. Uh, this bought me some time to think about how to answer your question. So uh, I admire Rodney. He, he's really uh, the person who took us from counting lesions to actually having a meaningful impact on the patients with cancer. And he's the author of that uh, fantastic analogy. We're not lumpologists. We don't count lumps. We provide meaningful information to patients. So. Um, Although I may phrase things differently, maybe not necessarily the pillar of the temple of oncology, I think that maybe we are getting a, a significant seat at the table with the other specialties who treat these patients with cancer. And Christina? I think it may be. Uh, if I think in terms of research and uh, data from the academia, the idea of the diagnostic is fantastic. So. Of course, it's very stimulating and uh, uh, very promising. But as we are seeing at this Congress, the relationship with industry, reimbursement, and numbers of therapies that will be available in the next future is very relevant to uh, weight how much this uh, branch with the, will impact on uh, patients and on patients' management. So I would say, in theory, yes. Let's see what happens in the management all, on all this you know, new thing. <laughs> and what do you think, Jimon? You're head of RLT at Novartis. So. Uh, so from my perspective, absolutely yes, but I would say that. So uh, look, I mean, the mechanism of action is so elegant um, and what we can achieve with this, we've only just begun. So there's a lot of way to go. Um, I'm very excited about the future and perhaps more excited about the future than what we currently have today. Um, and we've just started with um, some new molecules. So let's see how that goes. Great, and I think we are, maybe we are, as a community, we are quite convinced about this, the future of diagnostic because we are nuclear medicine people and we understand the things with uh, radioactive isotopes. But Christina, yesterday you gave a talk on how to raise awareness for the diagnostic concept. What, what can we do? How, do you know? Uh, in summary, we have to keep the level high. The level of uh, uh, nuclear medicine doctors who needs to get in relationships with uh, oncologists and with clinicians. And uh, I'm not talking about only about nuclear medicine doctors who are doing terranostics, but all the nuclear medicine community, because, you know, we are the face and we are the access to this procedure. So everybody, uh, every each 
uh, each one of us should be aware, should uh, promote this field, should make uh, oncologists, clinicians, patients, uh, healthcare systems be aware of the potential of, this, uh, uh, of these procedures and of this uh, uh, area. Uh, so keep the level high, keep studying, keep being updated on what's going on, uh, and I'm talking about everybody of us. I followed the session yesterday and, and Ken actually asked my question, uh, what can you do at your hospital? Uh, from my point of view, um, human touch is a very good start. So um, just uh, start to get in a close relation, um, everyday relationship with, uh, with your clinicians, that is the oncologist or hematologist or whoever. And this is a good start and uh, start working together and share the data and uh, not be protective on your own field uh, and grow together. And uh, in that way, it's possible to create teams working together and that, that's the basis. And then you can grow. <laughs> you agree on this, Andreu? Absolutely. And I would add, to be considered an equal player with the other specialties, you need to participate in the tumor boards, you need to see this patient in consultation. So it changes the practice of nuclear medicine. We now see every patient in a up to an hour consult before the first cycle of treatment, ordering labs, review other scans, review pathology, uh, reach out to your colleagues with questions, refer to other specialties, uh, monitor them during treatment. Uh, so it, it changes the practice of nuclear medicine if you want to be taken seriously um, as a caretaker for these patients. So it comes right back to what Christina said, human touch and being very involved. Yeah, great, and you talked, Andre, yesterday about teragnostics, the catalyst for nuclear medicine growth. Can you explain what you said yesterday? Right, so I, I like the analogy of the catalyst because it's something that accelerates a reaction while or without being consumed by it. So uh, the teragnostics will continue to grow but at the same time, uh, as I was showing the picture of the exhibit hall here, you know, you see more pharma booths and larger pharma booths than the standard equipment vendors that you see in nuclear medicine equipment. So this is, you know, this is really great and it stimulates the big box vendors to invest more in research and development and it motivates academia to be uh, more open to more research and development and in turn, and to me that's the most important thing, it attracts young talent uh, bright scientists to the field of nuclear medicine and it's amazing to see here the vibrancy of the meeting so many young people presenting great work so that's the the, the concept of the catalyst yeah, great um, Jivan I think from a ecosystem perspective this is something that we think about a lot internally uh, at Novartis is how do we help the physicians actively communicate and engage with the healthcare system on a wider basis to make sure that the referrals come through appropriately, to make sure that the patients are worked up appropriately. This requires system level thinking and not just looking at individual centers um, and how they operate. Otherwise, unfortunately, we won't access uh, all of the patients um, that could potentially benefit from the therapy. So trying to break out of our little silos as a collective, as a community, industry and uh, academia and healthcare systems together is something that's really important to us. I, I would say what works at one institution doesn't necessarily work at another and we should be open-minded of, you know, what's the ultimate goal, which is for patients to have access to, to these treatments. 
in this episode uh, here from Barcelona, we have been talking about uh, like a terragnostic revolution. Uh, you are from different parts of the globe. You are from Jewess and Ray, so probably a little bit before us. And you are from, from, from Christina, you are from, from Europe. Are we ready as a nuclear medicine community for this terragnostic revolution? What a difficult question. <laughs> um, we have centers that are ready all over the world. This doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is ready. Uh, you know, I've seen especially the ENM Oncological Committee working on this, providing, for example, guidelines on how to start and on how to uh, create a network for having colleagues helping with the starting. Uh, at that moment, we are not completely ready in terms of the numbers of uh, treatments that we can provide, which is not enough for uh, the patient necessities. But actually, we have taken a very good path. We have planned how to do. So uh, I see a bright future for this. I think that the professional societies are doing a great job collaborating and putting forward these uh, joint statements about how to set up a practice. I think that the quality of the care provided should be a driver, as Christina said. I think that having accreditation and designation of these centers, whether they're entry level all the way to comprehensive, is important and perhaps in the future will be tied in with reimbursement. So the higher the level of care you provide, the better the reimbursement or more types of diseases that you can treat. So I think that the future is bright. I also want to bring up, yesterday we had a session to honor San Gambier, uh, the, the, the late chair of radiology at Stanford, and one of his favorite things to say was that, uh, you know, we focus too much uh, on the late stages of disease, right? We spend so much of the healthcare money when there's little hope that someone will do well. So his quote was like, will celebrate when the hospitals are empty, when not, not when the hospitals are full. So I think that diagnostics is something for now, but as we think of the future, we should invest a lot of our research into earlier stages of disease when we can have more hope of curing patients and not just prolonging survival. And now we need to say welcome to Luis. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, you just so jumped much. into the podcast. Welcome, <laughs> Luis. <laughs> uh, I need to ask you uh, uh, and to explain for the listeners. You are Luis Emmett, and you are from Australia. Uh, and I will ask you the first question uh, based on your talk yesterday. And yesterday you talked about uh, get ready for the uh, next wave of terragnostic trials. Yes. Uh, Please explain for us, what is the next wave? Gee, you know, I, I, I think we've done such a great job in terms of approving, certainly in prostate cancer, that we can prolong survival with, um, uh, with theranostics. But, the, you know, if I was a prostate cancer patient, then the four months is just not long enough. And, uh, you know, what we need to do is we need to be really, really clever about what we combine theranostics with so we optimise responses in these patients. And we also need to use all of that capability of imaging to stratify our patients so we can decide who we need to de-intensify treatment on and who we can intensify treatment on so we get really, really good outcomes. You know, I think um, in lymphoma did it so beautifully where they've, they've taken patients who have 5% five-year survival, they now have 95% five-year survival, and I'd really love to see us do that uh, with theranostics in, in prostate cancer. 
uh, by using really clever combinations and, and great choices in terms of who we treat and how we treat them. So what should you be ready for? If you are a new med doc listening to this uh, <laughs> episode, uh... What should we be ready for in, in terms of trials? So I, I, I want to see uh, more predictive algorithms and I want to see more interim response um, uh, imaging so that we can identify patients who have uh, highly radiation sensitive disease that we can actually de-intensify treatment for. So we start changing treatment on a personal level. If a patient's doing really, really well with treatment response, we stop treatment for a while and we can actually give those patient treatment breaks. If patients uh, are showing only limited treatment responses, I want us to have done trials where we actually know what combination to put those patients on so in fact they can do as well as patients with well-behaved disease. Um, that, that's where I really think we should be going. Yeah, we had a talk, Andre, a little bit before. We had a pre-chat pre before this uh, podcast and you said, oh, nice, we have Europe, we have Australia, we have uh, Europe, we have US. Uh, and you said that, yeah, Europe, are doing the, the first trial, first men in first using men, uh, and then we have Australia doing the phase two trials, and then we have Jewels uh, together with maybe the industry doing the phase three trials. C should we continue like that, or no, who no, should Australia run the trials? No, Australia wants to do the phase three trials too. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Jiman. <laughs> I just think, look, we've got to take a whole global approach to this. Um, there's different uh, levels of expertise in different niche areas around the world, and I think bringing it together means that everybody wins. So let's try and create that connectivity between the centers, try and work together, and uh, create a global win. Very good. Uh, I will ask you a little bit, maybe a controversial question. Um, uh, because before, just before you joined, Louise, we talked about our nuclear medicine ready for the diagnostic revolution. Um, is it a risk that we slow things down? We don't have capacity, we don't have PET CTs, we don't have SPECT CTs in our hospitals. Do, do you understand the question? Yeah. Andre. I think in the US it will be a market-driven situation where if nuclear medicine doesn't do it, someone will step up and do it. And there is conversation about radiation oncologists doing it if the nuclear medicine physicians are unwilling or unable to do it. And what I say to that, don't feel threatened by it. Try to be better at what you do, train more people. And if someone else uh, is better suited to do those treatments in a rural facility where there's no nuclear medicine physician, why deprive the patient for treatment? So you ask a controversial question, I gave you a controversial <laughs> response here. Uh, and again, this is just market-driven reality in the United States where the, the, the whole scope of practice of medicine, every facility is trying to come closer to the patient instead of the patient having to travel long distances uh, to, to get care. And I hope and I wish that nuclear medicine will continue to be the first line of practitioners delivering this. But it's a tall order if you just think of the sheer number of patients with prostate cancer who will need this treatment. So societies, SNMI, ENM, and the SNM, they need to pump up more specialists, more experts, more people who are willing to get involved with nuclear medicine. Luis, do you agree? Yeah, look, I, I actually think it's also about education. It's, um, you know, we, we need to educate everyone uh, in terms of how to do this best. 
Um, and, and I think it's an excitement thing as well. The, the, more, you, the more people get involved, uh, it's a really interesting field and, and it's going to grow nuclear medicine. Um, so I think what will happen is this will push nuclear medicine to become better. And at the same time, I think it's also really important that nuclear medicine doesn't, as you say, just give it away. Uh, but also works really collaboratively with other specialists to make sure it's done very, very well uh, and is available to all patients. Christina. Yes. In my view, this is a nuclear medicine. It cannot be a radiation oncology. It cannot be a radiologist or an oncologist that can do these procedures. It's a nuclear medicine procedure. It's imaging, molecular imaging together with treatment. So we have actually to uh, ride the wave and uh, push all the efforts that we have in this field. Absolutely. Jim? I think we focus quite heavily on trying to think about how we create a pill-like experience. Obviously at Novartis we have a combination of intravenous drugs, pills uh, and RLT. And until we have fully mapped out all of the steps that are required in order to give a patient RLT and they're equivalent to a patient receiving a pill or as close to equivalent as a patient receiving a pill, I think that it will always be an easier option to put patients on a drug that actually might be less efficacious in some circumstances and not receive RLT. So when we mapped this out in real oncology centers, we did it in the UK, Germany and the US, and it was an order of magnitude higher number of interactions for, for a patient to receive RLT than to receive a pill. So. This is something that we need to work on together, collaboratively, both industry trying to make it as easy as possible for uh, centers to access the RLT, um, but also within the center trying to reduce the number of interactions required in order to schedule a patient, get them booked in, get them worked up for a therapy. So we'll never quite be as low as the number of interactions required internally uh, to receive a pill, but we need to head in that direction. Otherwise, it'll always be an easy, there'll always be an either easier option. Do you agree? As long as you don't say we don't need to scan. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, I think there's some, there's some limit um, to, to uh, what we need to do. There are, you know, there's some minimal requirements. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, it does need to be simplified. I think from my perspective, I think scanning adds so much more utility than just seeing whether the receptors are present. So I think if you were asking me purely on the basis of, you know, is there a loss of value in checking whether the receptors are present in certain diseases, I'd say probably not. But is there tremendous value in having the scans for lots of other reasons? Uh, I'd say yes, absolutely. Um. Going back to Rodney Hicks again, <laughs> he talked about a new speciality, he talked about turgonsticians. Do we need a, you know, is it enough with a nuclear medicine specialist and we have oncologists because when it comes to if, if, if nuclear medicine actually are treating the patient, we need to take care of the patients maybe as well. Do we need a combination or, or trained doctors, trained nuclear medicine doctors that are also trained in oncology or... I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all kind of solution, so I'm just going to speak a little bit about what I see about the United States, where the pathways to practicing nuclear medicine varies from four months during radiology training to 16 months within four years to five years of combined training to three years of nuclear medicine. So each of these categories will fill different roles in a country of 300-plus 
million people and there's room for all of them. So I think that the simpler treatments and the patients who are not very sick can be seen in community hospitals where probably someone with, with adequate training but not necessarily oncology expertise will be able to administer some of these treatments. The more complicated cases probably will need to go to tertiary centers where you have multidisciplinary care, where you have people who have been trained in how to manage the complications arising from the treatment and where you work, if it exceeds your limits or your ability to deal with the complications, you reach out to a colleague who deals with this on a, on a daily basis. Um, and then you have the super specialized centers where people perhaps go into an oncology fellowship or a diagnostics fellowship. But as it is now, there are programs that train people adequately in how to do the treatment on top of being excellent diagnosticians and being able to collaborate with others. So it's not black and white. I think it's a continuous it's shades of gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Luis. I, I actually do believe in theranosticians, um, I, I, but, but it doesn't mean that we can't all become theranosticians. I, I thought the plenary session yesterday was really interesting where we're really talking about changing the definition of theranostics, but we also need to educate our entire community on theranostics on how to appropriately treat patients uh, from an oncologic perspective. We do need to be thinking at an oncologic level um, in terms of how we treat our patients. And I think we get great value, we give great value in conjunction with the oncologists um, because we, we do bring a different perspective. So I want us to upskill, actually. I want everyone to be good uh, at how we do this, and that's going to be an enormous amount of education in the next few years. I think everyone will find it really fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's huge, it's very interesting, and if we leave it just to the oncologists, um, then we're not going to get as good care. Christina? Yes, I totally agree. Again, this is a natural evolution, in my view. Um, we have seen in the past that, for example, in nuclear medicine, there are people more specialized in thyroid, in PET-CT, in cardiology, and that's the natural evolution of this branch. So yes, probably in the future, not in medium future, but uh, in some years, we will need some specialized uh, track for being uh, specialized in theranostics and uh, getting people get more involved with the clinical part of the job, which is not really represented now for nuclear medicine doctors, so yes. And right. And I would just look historically, right? <laughs> Medical oncology was not even a specialty on its own 30, 40 years ago, right? There are small groups within internal medicine, right? But the need to subspecialize made it such that it became its own. So perhaps there will be a specialty called theranostics, and people will become, in nuclear medicine, subspecialized in you know, treatment of prostate, treatment of neuroendocrine tumors. I mean, that will be a sign of, of growth for the field, right? When you need to subspecialize because you cannot keep up with the developments. So I think that would be a good thing. Jimon. So yes, we were talking about this earlier. Um, it's so great to come to this conference and see 7,000 people here. And uh, when I started 15 years ago um, in the field, I remember um, coming to the conference and seeing like less than 3,000 people. So I think the short answer for me is that I don't know because Louise was referring earlier to the fact that there's gonna be combinations um, in the future uh, and we need to think about how those uh, theranosticians would manage combination therapies as well so it's really difficult for me to look ahead because I never would have dreamt that we would have got here uh, and the future looks even more exciting so let's see what happens yeah because you do a running a trial with combinations the multiple trial. combinations the yeah. more the better uh, you know I want us to find the archop 
of um, you know of, of theranostics really um, that, that works very very effectively for our patients. We're going to find that, uh, and we're going to find different treatment combinations in different cancers, and they're all going to be optimized. It's it's very fun. Nice, uh, Andre. You want to respond? I think the age of everybody doing everything will be gone in the next decade or so, just because the advancement of science being so fast that you can't keep up. I mean, I'm honestly not that comfortable anymore reading brain PET scans, right, with amyloid or tau, because I don't do it frequently. So perhaps the same analogy will be for, for, for therapies. Since we're all confessing, um, I, I haven't read an FDG PET um, that's not a prostate cancer FDG PET for, for a long time. And uh, I did a thesis in, in cardiology, but I, I, I don't do it anymore. We, we've already started subspecialty. We're subspecializing. Yeah, okay, then maybe it's time for the, the last question, or that's a controversial one again. Um, we can call it the elephant in the room. We have in, in Europe and maybe in Australia, we have a lot of academia centers that's fully equipped with radiopharmacists. And then we have you, Jeevan, from the industry, try to, knocking on the door, having, you know, drugs that you can deliver to the hospital. Who should do what? in the future? What is the role of academia and the hospitals and what is the role for industry? I will let you start to, to answer the question. Because this problem has been solved for us with centralized <laughs> system of distribution. Yeah, uh, because you are in the US, so it's a difference and that's the beautiful thing. I, I, think, I mean, we're investing 20 plus million dollars in a second radiochemistry facility at Stanford. Why? Because we think that early stage development will be done by academia. You cannot expect industry to stay focused on all, the entire spectrum from drug development to phase three to clinical implementation. So we believe very strongly that drug development, academia and private institutions will have a huge role. And again, I'll quote Sam, it's called research for a reason, right? You fail way more frequently than you're successful, right? So that's part of the academia, right? But those one or two molecules that if you're lucky enough you're able to take to a phase one or phase two studies, you're not gonna cross to phase three in academia. So that's when, in my view, the industry will need to come join us and make it successful. Yes, perfectly agree. This is a long story and uh, this is how it should go. Uh, I mean, you have to leave uh, scientists and researchers to be free of, uh, you know, do experiments and uh, think about uh, innovation. And then, of course, you need uh, a relationship with the industry to develop and to sell uh, tracers and to um, letting all the people that are not academic people having this treatment ready every day for for uh, for uh, the clinical use. Uh, but that's very nice to see this balance, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. Industry cannot live without academia and actually academia cannot live without industry. So uh, as long as we keep a balance, that will be um, a winner solution, in my view. Do you agree, Jivan? Your industry? So I um, completely agree. Let's uh, really collaborate and focus on doing early stage research with um, the academic units, which have a lot of expertise. Um, and I see that as a really positive relationship to be able to switch quickly from preclinical into first in man, um, which is a kind of unique benefit that we have with Theranostics. It's much, much quicker and easier to do that um, compared to some other types of new emerging oncology uh, therapeutics. So let's capitalize on that, allow that to speed things up, 
But of course, I can think of at least one, if not two, examples of therapies that would have been quite promising had they gone through proper large phase three trials over the last 15 years. Um, and we need to make sure that happens and that can only happen with industry. Do you agree, Luis? Yeah, I mean, I, just just here, um, coming to some of the lectures and talking about the minor changes that happen in peptide development and, and linker development, that all needs to happen in phase one trial. So, so they go from that and then it needs to happen in a human being. We can't just do it in a mice. The amount of work that needs to happen, it has to have academia limped. So, so actually, uh, I think collaboration is the key. We, we, we need to become friends and we need to do it as fast as we can um, collaboratively. Thank you all for joining the podcast and it was very nice having you in the studio. Uh, this was the last live episode from the EANM22. It has been fun. If you want to reach out to us, please send us an email at podcast.sonordic.se or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Stay tuned, stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.